Elemento is an online market filled with Canadian organic and natural goods. Choose from hundreds of sustainable and plant-based products at elemento.com and have them delivered straight to your door. Shopping for delicious, nutritious, and organic plant-based foods has never been easier. Use code PAUSE15 to receive 15% off your next order. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O dot com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system. Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 68 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Lapchuk, joined by one of my co-hosts today, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Hey, Camille. How are you? You know, it's I'm about as good as one can be in the midst of a global pandemic after Toronto just went back into lockdown, which I have to say I'm very happy about. I think it should have happened probably a month sooner than it did, but I think it's the right step and the right move. So, you know. My life is going to be more of the same for the next month. <laughs> well, we here in Alberta are in voluntary lockdown because everything is voluntary in Alberta. So apparently even masks are voluntary. So, But I've heard on the horizon, uh, and this will be old news by the time this podcast is released, but 4.30, there's actual an announcement coming from uh, the Premier's office. So we might have actual measures designed to contain an actual pandemic, but I suspect most of it will be voluntary. Maybe there'll be a requirement that you wear masks if you're around more than 100 people. Something like that would seem <laughs> consistent with Kenny's yeah. <laughs> policies. Something along those lines. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, uh, it's it's... It's 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 interesting. Anyway, let's not dwell on that, Camille. That is just too depressing for words. No, we we all have more interesting things to talk about, and this is an animal law podcast, after all. So let's let's get to that now. Before and we in get, in the very least, we are jam packed. Um, I like to say, um, Camille, we've been doing this long enough that we've, we've, we've said before that sometimes we scrounge for material. This was not a scrounging episode. This was an episode where we had to make cuts. There yeah. was so much to talk about. Yeah, there is a lot going on and it's going to be an exciting one. Now, before we get into it, Peter, maybe we should just mention to our listeners that uh, just give them an update on the schedule for this podcast for the rest of the year. <sighs> So, oh my God, it's exciting, Camille. Do I hear Christmas bells? Do we? Do I hear ding, Christmas ding, bells? Ding, They're ding, faint. Ding, ding, They're ding, faint. Ding, ding. <laughs> They're faint, but I hear them because it's a very special episode coming up. Yeah, we're going to take a three-week break after this episode. And we're going to come back uh, in three weeks' time with 
our annual holiday special featuring not just me, not just Peter, but all three co-hosts, Peter, Camille, and Jessica. Camille, it's our annual holiday spectacular. Get the wording right. It's not oh. special. It's our okay. annual holiday spectacular. Oh, sorry, more than just special. Got it. <laughs> well, I'm excited for this. It's been a ton of fun in the past when we've done it. Uh, we give each other silly fake gifts, and I'm already dreaming up my gifts. <laughs> I already have a few. I've started my Christmas shopping a little bit early. I've got a few lined up. I'm still trying to seek out some other ones that are just the right thing. But, you know, I'm starting. I've, I've picked out a few things here and there, Camille. Well, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. And I think it'll give us all a little something to look forward to as we settle in for perhaps a bleak winter. Now, Speaking of our co-host, Jessica, I want to give her a shout out for winning a very cool award. Now, Peter, it's not just you and me that we can say are award-winning podcast co-hosts. Uh, Jessica was just awarded the 2021 Clements Award for Outstanding Media. Now, this is an award given out by our friends at the Fur Bearers, of which Executive Director Leslie Fox was our guest on the last episode. So a great organization. By the way, they just got their charitable status reinstated by the... CRA this week. So congratulations to them. And we'll post a link to the announcement in the show notes. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, congrats to uh, Jess. That's, uh, it's good, you know, now that we have award winners, I would, I would just point out that Jess's award is the most recent award. And I, I think mine is the next most recent award. So Camille, like, you're, you're falling behind. In the First, <laughs> first he teases me for winning awards. <laughs> now the problem is it's not an award that's recent enough for Peter's preferences. Well, thanks for that. It's not. It's not. It's not a recent oh, award. <laughs> now, now, now he's he's showing off his his recent award. Okay, good for you. Good for you. Congratulations, Peter. No, seriously, that's uh, great news and uh, certainly very well deserved for all the hard work that uh, Jess has done, including an article that I don't think was considered for the award, but it's going to come up later in this show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, something I, I should let you speak to this, Peter, because it's something that you've been asking for for, I mean, actually literally years. But are the rumors true that we are getting <laughs> Pawn Order merchandise? I think the rumors are true, Camille. I mean, I say that keeping in mind that there is nothing in my, you know, hot, greedy hands yet. I don't know. Have you actually got your hands on anything? I've no. seen them. Our we producer, seen. our producer, yes. Shannon Milling, has posted photos on social media of a paw and order mug. A pawn order mug. And I think some stickers. Is that correct? Or something? I think we're getting stickers, some, too. Yeah. So a paw and order mug is very exciting. And I can tell you that, um, you know, needless to say, I'm, I'm ecstatic to be drinking out of my paw and order mug um, as soon as possible. And I believe it is underway. So hopefully for, for my first gift to myself for Christmas, <laughs> <on the next laughs> show, I'll be 
able to drink out of my Paw and Order mug. And of course, uh, we're excited about this merch because, quite frankly, not just because we want it ourselves, um, it's also because we want to share it with you, our our, uh, our amazing listeners who've helped support the show. And uh, we are uh, now that we have the merch, we're really thinking about ways to do that. Yeah, and uh, you know. If you're supporting us on Patreon, you're already in the running for regular prize draws, and you might see the merch make its way into future gifts on Patreon. That's what we're hoping. So that's really, uh, that's some good stuff. We've been fighting for this merch. It is not quite the mythical t-shirts that we've talked about uh, on many, many occasions. I won't go back to the t-shirt well, but I, I... a mug is a good start, Camille. We're on to uh, a good start with mugs and stickers. All right. Anything to keep you pacified for now, Peter? Well, I understand that the, the you know, as much as I want the T-shirt, I do understand the nature of skews and the, the problem of having to buy multiple sizes is always a problem. So mugs are one size fits all, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're a great gift or a gift to yourself. Yeah. So that's great news. Now, what else is going on with you, Camille? I notice you say um, um, your notes say nothing is new because nothing ever happens anymore. <laughs> that's a little bit depressing. I mean, it's all in your perspective. You you just kind of have to adjust your mindset and adapt to this idea that nothing is going to happen. Um, no, honestly, I do find it a little difficult not having anything really on the horizon to look forward to, apart from our holiday spectacular episode. Mm-hmm. But of course. I'll share for listeners in Toronto a little tip of something that made my weekend last weekend. It made my weekend a lot better. Um, I ordered vegan croissants and uh, pain au chocolat from La Bastille Bakery. In Toronto. So this is a uh, non-vegan bakery that offers a vegan bundle on the weekends and they will deliver it right to your house. You can get croissants, chocolate croissants, uh, baguettes, all kinds of other cool things. So La Bastille Bakery. Yeah, check it out. So that's pretty much all that's new with me. Otherwise, I just work and and work. (laughs) I work out sometimes. How about you, Peter? I, I have a few little things I want to talk about, um, um, two that are of interest. One is I'm excited, Camille. I no longer, I've decided like, you know, leaving aside all the copyright implications, if I wanted to go out and make and sell pawn order t-shirts, I could do so. And the reason is because I have my own online store. It's very exciting. I've never had one before. And uh, this stems out of, uh, some of you may know, um, the legal seminars that that I've been running for uh, criminal and civil litigators for the past year. And um, um, I'm very, very excited uh, about this online store, which just went up a week or two ago. And um, so we've we've had the online seminars going for a couple of months now since, wow, since, since COVID started, actually. So it's been a while. But we've just been doing it all manually. So people essentially, you know, send us an e-transfer and we send them a registration. Well, in fact, I'm guessing that some of our listeners have attended some of these seminars before. Uh, But now we have a full e-store, so you can go on, you can pay with your credit card, and you can get as many wonderful uh, learning seminars um, as you like. 
And I wanted to point out, um, I don't know how many of our Paw & Order listeners are civil or criminal lit- litigators, but we are going to provide a very special, um, um, I'm going to provide a special offer to our Paw & Order listeners just because you're Paw & Order listeners. Um, and for our Paw & Order listeners, I'm going to offer you a, a, a free recording. Um, if you want to try out our, our, our stuff, you just have to email me and I'll send you the coupon code that we are in the process of putting together. So just if you're a Paw & Order listener and you want to try out some continuing legal education, it's not on animal law, to be clear. This is on criminal law and civil litigation. Um, just uh, email me or get in touch with me through my through our website, which is petersankoff.com, and I'll set you up. Just you have to mention you're a Paw & Order listener. That's the key. And not a t- bad time of year to be thinking about this because everyone's continuing professional development hours are due usually December 31st. So I'm working on mine right now and hope some of you take advantage. But Peter. In fact, I think you might have listened to one of our videos. I did. I watched your professionalism video on uh, communicating with witnesses, which was super interesting and a good refresher. I used to think about those issues a lot more when I was a practicing criminal lawyer and uh, less these days. But Peter. I think what our listeners all really want to know is, apart from whatever courses you're offering in the store, can they buy t-shirts with the sink? (laughs) A photo of the sink. Not yet. The warehouse is being built, Camille. I mean, I'm expecting big, big offers. So the warehouse is is underway. We'll get the pawn order t-shirts, the sink t-shirts. It's all coming. Okay. Glad to hear. Now, on top... On top of that, um, I did want to point out, I I rarely, you know, it's not that often that we do, um, you know, TV reviews here, but it has been known to happen in the past. And we've all been um, watching uh, a lot of TV, I'm imagining, during this time, or a lot of uh, Netflix and various, uh, you know, platforms. Um, I I wanted to put in a plug for uh, one that uh, came across my radar screen and I watched last last week with my kids, uh, which is called My Octopus Teacher. Have you uh, heard about this one, Camille? I have. I actually watched it in August with my mom while I was in PEI. And wow, it, it really blew me away. It was a, a look at octopus lives like I'd never seen before. Octopuses happen to be probably my favorite animal to the extent that you can have a favorite animal because they're all pretty cool. Uh, so I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it was just... It was really, first of all, it was very moving. Um, second of all, it was very powerful. And, and let's be honest, um, there were a lot of, I thought, I mean, maybe I, maybe I watch everything through a speciesist lens, Camille. So like, maybe that's just me, but like everything about the, 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 the episode, like the movie was really just showing me again about breaking down barriers, about the sophistication that animals possess, their capacity for growth, their capacity for, for sharing, caring, intelligence. I mean, the, the, I mean, I knew that octopuses or octopi, I always get that mixed up. I apologize. Yeah, octopuses were 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 intelligent creatures, but like their ability for like you know the documented ability for using tools and hiding and doing things that were 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 really demonstrative of a high level of intelligence and curiosity, let alone empathy for other species, was was incredibly powerful to me. And by the end of it, again, you know, it was hard not to get a message of the need 
to show greater respect for the animals that are around us as being the core of what this was about. And I just thought, but, but what I liked about it, Camille, was it was a very subtle message. This wasn't, it didn't start off as like, I didn't, I didn't get the feeling that the documentary filmmaker who took this out was about, I am here to document my love for the natural, you know, world and for animals in it. I didn't get that sense at all. It sort of, it started out as a personal journey about he was feeling detached from his own life. It wasn't like a spiritual quest to learn or bond with animals. And that just sort of happened. And as that happened and the documentation continued, it just seemed to me that this, the, 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 again, empathy and emotional feeling for a particular animal was a very powerful message, I thought, about, again, our need to recognize the particular needs of animals and treat them as the individual beings that they are. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I've I've also heard similar feedback from pretty much everyone who's watched it, which is great to me because it says it's really touching a nerve and tapping into something that maybe people don't often think about, about the way the humans relate with the world around us. Um, it's also striking to me how different octopuses are from us. I mean, they're one of the most different creatures from us on the planet. Uh, in fact, do you know what our last common ancestor is with an octopus? Hit me. Basically a worm about the size of your thumb. Yeah, it's far. They're really far back. That I know. We yeah. took completely, almost completely different uh, evolutionary routes, yet we still evolved some of the same physical characteristics, like eyeballs, God, I wish instance. we could change color like they do, though. Oh, Holy crap. Was that uh, or cool. regrow oh limbs. Yeah, regrowing limbs Or taste limbs with your too. arms. Oh, God, they're yeah. so cool. Anyway. Yeah, I like that. The suction cups and everything about them. But I mean, of course, let's not forget that octopus are food. Like that's what's so utterly distressing about this. Like, again, I don't wish to cast, you know, cast aspersions on any food source that we have, uh, be it chickens or pigs and all of those creatures that demonstrate, you know, sophisticated levels of intelligence, especially pigs and, and their ability to emote and all that. But I mean, this octopus, it's just hard not to be overwhelmed about what this octopus was capable of, of doing and, and the, 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 the breadth of uh, emotional and intellectual responses on display. And to think that somebody looks at that and thinks, yummy is just, you know, aside from the shark, well, yeah. I won't spoil the end of the, no. <laughs> it is the wild kingdom, so I won't yeah. spoil the end, but like, like the, you know, I give a pass to the sharks, but to the human beings who watch my octopus teacher and think yum calamari or whatever, I realize calamari is squid technically, but you get the idea. The idea that octopus is something to be eaten is just, it's deeply, deeply troubling. It's like, it, 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 again, you watch that and it's hard, hard not to be upset just by that that to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when people who are non-vegan watch that and feel upset by the idea of people eating octopuses once they relate to them on that level, um, that's how those of us who don't eat animals feel every single day walking into a grocery store and seeing body parts wrapped up like that. It's it's a tough world and it's tough to process. But yeah, if you, if you haven't watched it, listeners, check it out. I think everyone will find something that they enjoy in my octopus teacher. Yeah. Well worth it. And just as an aside, I mean, with with uh, with Netflix, there's so much content that something that's on your front bar is just like disappears so quickly. Uh, I, I think I barely caught this before it disappeared down into like the 20th row of my Netflix uh, queue. So like, yeah, you, you might have to look it up, but it's definitely worth it. It's it's a tidy hour and a half. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, two other quick announcements from what's coming up in Animal Justice. We actually have a holiday party coming up that you are all invited to. So it's, you know, Peter, obviously we've had in-person holiday parties now since, gosh, I think 2014 is the first time we had a holiday party, which is always a ton of fun. We do one in Toronto every year. Uh, We've had them in Vancouver, Edmonton and Ottawa. And obviously this year is going to look a little bit different. I'm very sad about no in-person celebrations, but we are still going to offer our supporters uh, the chance to gather together online in a virtual format on Friday, December 11th. So uh, you can RSVP to this. I believe if you just visit the Animal Justice website, there's the ability to do so, or you can watch for an email to that effect, which would have gone out. But we would love to have you there. We're going to premiere our annual year in review video, which again, is going to look a little bit different this year, but I think we'll still uh, show some of the exciting work that we've been up to and that you've helped accomplish alongside us. So uh, join us if you want to celebrate. Now, One other thing just to make note of, we've talked about this a little bit on this podcast before, is that we're launching something called the Animal Justice Academy in the new year, which is going to be an online training school for six weeks that's going to help people become better advocates. And uh, we're working hard on this. We're working away. It will hopefully give you something to focus on during the longer winter months, and that's going to launch in January. So just giving everyone a heads up that it's coming. Stay tuned for more. Absolutely. Good stuff. Lots on the horizon, as always. All right. If you love this podcast as much as we do, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your other podcatcher platform. Uh, Reviews are great because they help other people find this podcast and they help us spread the ideas of animal law and anti-speciesism and compassion and all the things that we talk about. We got a nice new review from M Nuts via Apple Podcasts. Short but nice. Short but nice. They call it a must listen. This podcast is incredibly informative and educational. That is what we're aiming for. We want to spread awareness about news, current issues in animal law and animal topics. And uh, we always strive to be informative and educational. So thank you for your feedback and thanks for that great review. Absolutely. All right. We have a uh, very busy show today, don't we? We do. We do. Lots of news. Lots of news. All right. Well, let's start off with uh, a story out of Ontario. The province has struck a provincial animal welfare advisory table, uh, which is going to help improve animal welfare, allegedly by um, helping to establish regulations for animal protection. So background to this is that about a year ago, the province of Ontario passed the new PAWS Act, which is updated animal welfare legislation. It took enforcement away from the Ontario SPCA, took it in-house to the province, and it set up a new regime that could accommodate animal welfare regulations. But A year later, we're still waiting for those regulations, and this body is uh, supposed to help consider them. Yeah, and I I mean, I think by and large, that's a good thing. 
I think what we have seen in the past that the government's ability to act on behalf of the animal interests when there's such a clear conflict of interest between the government's desire to promote economic entities that have an interest in using animals and that conflict between the government's supposed safeguard role for the interests of animals themselves has been really difficult to manage. And I certainly think that any time you set up an advisory table of leading uh, uh, voice that have an interest in this particular issue, I think you're in a much better position to hopefully lead to better outcomes down the road. And I'm I'm pleased to say that in contrast to certain other um, advisory bodies that shall um, remain nameless, <coughs> sorry, that was just a cough there, I couldn't uh, control myself, where the body is nothing more than a group of industry advocates with like the odd sprinkling a little sprinkling, a little parsley garnish, as it were, of an animal advocacy group. It's nice to see that this this advisory group hasn't been set up and certainly isn't dominated by every agricultural interest in the province. Like, to be sure, um, one of the bodies at the table, and I think quite rightly so, is the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. But you can also, and, and you know, CASA, the Canadian accredited zoos and aquariums are there as well. But you also get at several um, animal interest uh, groups like Animal Alliance and uh, the Humane, Humane Canada and even academics like our good friend uh, Dr. Kendra Coulter and uh, Gail Ecker, the director of Equine Guelph at the University of Guelph. So I do think that there is a, a, a much better sort of round table in which the voices at the table, because you know, and I know Camille, that when you have voices surrounding a table, if you're going to have a table, the size and uh, uh, proportionality of the voices at the table matter. So uh, quite frankly, um, I commend Ontario for actually taking this route and for setting up a group that uh, hopefully in the long run will help uh, set better standards for animals. Well, we'll see what they produce. I um, will try to be optimistic about this process. I'm a little disappointed not to see animal justice on it, uh, despite a promise from the province that we would be included. Um, I differ from you on the presence of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. That actually concerns me greatly. Uh, Listeners will recall that that's the group that made a submission to the province earlier this year in passing the egg-gag legislation, which they supported, where they said that uh, they are not sure that animals uh, are sentient or that they have cognitive capacities. So basically they're saying they're not sure if animals can think or feel pain. And it troubles me a little bit, Peter, that a group that is taking that position would be advising on anything to do with animal welfare. So we'll see where this goes. There's certainly potential. I I, I guess... I I think that's a fair point. My response would be I'm reminded um, to go... uh I'm, I'm going to draw on a sports analogy of all things, Camille, but I'm going to go way back <laughs> on a sporting analogy. Um, you may not remember this because it's, 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 if it's a, little, a sporting like, analogy, I, don't, I definitely well, don't remember. I, okay, well, a, I was going to say that a, because sporting analogy and B, because it's quite a long time ago, but, um, there were issues, um, in the 1980s about, uh, uh racism in baseball. And, uh, the issue was sparked by a very famous, outburst by the uh, general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the uh, general 
manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, went on uh, a program to discuss why there were so few uh, African-Americans in managerial and management positions and said things that essentially were veiled racist statements for which he was called to task and fired from his position. And what happened was the next month, I remember the... um, the commissioner of baseball set up a, a, a blue ribbon panel to explore how racism, you know, invades into the thought of baseball minds. And the first person that the commissioner of this panel hired was the guy who had been fired for making the statements. And effectively, I'm not kidding. And his statement was, if we're going to root out this kind of inconsistency, we can't just shut this out. We need to understand how these people think. So I, I, I take your point, but, but what I'm saying is like, fine, bring them to the table, let them spout their nonsense and let them be confronted by the people at the table. Like they're not in a position where they can just spout this freely. If they're at that table and they want to make comments like animals are not sentient, I promise you, I have every confidence that people like Kendra and others will hold them to task and say, prove it. Why? What's your basis for that? And I'm, I, I don't know, maybe Maybe it's the optimistic voice in me, Camille. <laughs> I, I'm not just... used to this optimism from you, Peter. But okay, why don't why don't we just why don't we just leave it at that? <laughs> it's distressing. It's this optimistic view. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my optimistic side for a moment. I think this pandemic I will, I will, is really getting to you. It's possible. It's possible. And I will I will certainly reserve the right to put on cynics hat when this goes south. But for the moment, I'm gonna I'm gonna fly on the side of angels, Camille, and hope that this uh, turns turns out in a way that uh, is positive. Well, I hope so too. I I am an optimist, I think, by nature, despite uh, dealing with unfortunate situations, let's just put it that way. But there certainly is potential via these new regulations to do some good things like licensing and regulating zoos. Uh, that's something I really hope to see. Licensing and regulating farming practices. You know, we've got these torture devices that are still legal for use in Canada and Ontario, including things like battery cages for hens, uh, gestation crates for pigs, uh, farrowing crates for pigs, which we're going to talk about on this episode. So there is some real low-hanging fruit that uh, this committee and the government could start with in terms of animals, and I hope to see that happen. Things like Kathy Klein, uh, docking the tails of dogs, uh, cutting off the um, ears of dogs. There are is some real uh, opportunities. So let's leave it at that and hope that things move in the right direction. Now on to uh, what is a really big story. In fact, uh, just to show you uh, how how plush we were for things to talk about until a much bigger story came and <laughs> piped it from the headlines, and we'll get to that much bigger story in our main topic. This was going to be our main topic because there is uh, quite a bit to talk about with respect to this case out of New Zealand, um, which essentially uh, has found that regulations uh, imposed by the New Zealand government to uh, allow for the continued use of farrowing crates and mating stalls has now been held by a judge to be unlawful. And uh, for my money, Camille, this instantly jumps up the ranks as one of the more significant animal law decisions that we've had uh, really 
anywhere because it really is a clear blow to the government's uh, decision to allow this type of practice to go on. And I can say, and we'll get into the decision in a bit, there are a lot of particular complexities here. Um, there are a lot of particular aspects of the New Zealand legal regime that uh, really require some unpacking to understand the significance of the decision. But no matter how you unpack this, it's hard to see this as anything but good. It is a recognition by a judicial body, uh, subject, of course, to the potential of appeal, and I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not, um, that the regulations put in place to simply decree that farrowing crates provide for the needs of pigs in these circumstances is is false and not uh, consistent with judicial review. You can't imagine a much better condemnation of those cruel crates than this guidance from the court. So a pretty amazing decision. And I agree with you that the, the, the you know, the global impact of this case, I think, is probably going to be huge. Um, notably, it was a judicial review brought by two animal protection organizations. So the first is the uh, New Zealand Animal Law Association, which great group. They're, uh, you know, not unlike animal justice. They do amazing animal law work. I actually met a number of them when I was down there last year speaking at their conference. And the other group that they uh, worked with is SAFE, Stopping Animals from Exploitation. So these two groups took it upon themselves to, to bring forward this case and they were successful. So um, I think an endorsement of, of taking a risk and, uh, you know, making sure that judges do have these cases come before them because they can't make these decisions if they don't hear the cases. Yeah. And, and, you know, I always feel like some of this is a Canadian show, obviously, and we can talk about the impact of the decision. But um, some of, you know, one of the first questions that can sort of spring to mind is, you know, well, why can't we do something like this here? And, you know, one of the reasons for that has to do with, let's just start with the obvious. I, you know, I worked in New Zealand for 10 years, so I'm quite familiar with the legal regime there, and it is by no means perfect. It has flaws in the way their Animal Welfare Act is set up. It has certain loopholes that can be exploited. But holy God, it is so much better than what we have in this country. It's not even funny. And the reason I say that is because, to begin with, it has a clear legal mechanism to entrench the rules and regulations that affect animal use. So as a result, what you have is a, essentially what allowed this challenge to go forward is a very clear hierarchy of interests. There is an Animal Welfare Act that provides for very clear rules about how animals should be treated. They are like, you know, guidelines in a sense because they do not provide for the most part, very particular aspects of farrowing crates being permissible or whatever. They're essentially, here are the things that animals need, shelter, food, the ability to express normal behavior, etc., and then they provide regulatory functions and say, well, we have this group, this body called NAWAC, which is the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee, and it can submit various codes or regulations. And God, I'm still yet to figure out how the codes interact with the regulations. That's very confusing to me because when I lived there, there were only codes, but now there are regulations too. It doesn't really matter for our purposes because what we do need to know is those regulations have to be consistent with the act. That's basic law 101. And God, if we had that system in Canada, we could say the same thing. The problem in Canada and the reason why this decision is not as of as much use to us as we might like is because 
the rules that govern animal treatment in Canada are not actually established by regulation. There simply is no regulation. There are simply, to put it mildly, blanket exemptions that allow industry or agriculture to do whatever they want. And the codes that we have, as we've talked about many times on this show, are, are largely voluntary codes that, you know, farmers should adhere to. And that's not as easy to challenge in court to say, well, this voluntary code does not uh, comply with the overarching law. Yes. So you you contrast our voluntary code system with what they have in New Zealand, which is a government endorsed and overseen and run code system where the codes actually, depending on the circumstance, have some legal effect and can be used to hold farmers and other offenders to account. I mean, it's just so obviously a much better system. Um, You know, I think there's still some room to quibble about whether codes are an appropriate mechanism or there should just be hard regulations in all cases. But at least in New Zealand, there's a way to hold the government to account for the content of what it produces. And the other thing that you know a lot more about than I do, Peter, since you've been involved in this, but uh, just to mention is that in New Zealand, the codes have to be reissued and rewritten and revision, revised every set amount of time. Is it five years or is it 10 years? Um, it's changed over time, so I'm no longer sure. It was it was five years, then it was extended to 10 years. It goes back and forth. Well, and what's great about that is that it uh, gives the public a flashpoint. Every set period yeah. of time, there is an opportunity for public discourse and dialogue on what the appropriate standards are for the treatment of animals. So it's not like they just, you know, write them and forget them. Uh, you know, in Canada, here's here's a great example. Our animal transport laws were first introduced in 1978, and they were next revised in uh, 2019. So that was 41 years later. No statutory mechanism to force the government's hand and force them to do anything sooner, but there is in New Zealand. Yeah, and of course, as we know, Camille, with most most you know most uh, uh, regulations dealing with the particular on farm use of animals are provincial, and like, I mean, to put it mildly, the provinces have done just about nothing in this area there is no there are no there are so few regulations to actually look at again they've simply you know generally deferred to the reasonable farming practice sort of dictate which is like again it's not a situation in which you're able to show well well, first of all it's not a regulation it's in the act so as a result the act allows the activity to take place and there is no ability to challenge the particular practice as being inconsistent with the act so what happened in New Zealand is really in large part a function of the way in which to its credit to its credit that's the one thing i take from this decision more than anything else the new zealand government has made real steps to actually try and hold particular practices to account now that said i don't know if you spotted this there's an undercurrent in the decision of wanting to get away from that that's just un inevitable like it seems to me very clear that on one hand they want to make it more transparent and get rid of this idea that certain types of exceptional circumstances can allow illegal practices to continue but on the other hand they want farrowing crates to go on so there was an inconsistency at the core of what was going on in New Zealand that I think led to this decision but to its credit again just to go back to the pros and cons to its credit 
at least the law is transparent. At least we know what the law is. And at least there is the ability to go before a court and say, hey, this is an unacceptable. This is a real problem. And therefore, uh, uh, it cannot continue in this way. That challenge uh, right now is just not really possible uh, in Canada, at least with respect to agricultural practice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, you know, essentially in 2015, the New Zealand government decided to revise the Animal Welfare Act. And my understanding of the situation is that prior to that point, if the laws didn't explicitly disallow a practice, it was probably fine to do. But when things changed in 2015, the government said, no, that's not the case anymore. Um, if there are practices that, you know, aren't great, there is a mechanism to continue in to include them as a legal practice, but they have to be phased out and there has to be a timeline for that phase out. Now, NAWAC, this committee that Peter spoke about a minute ago, uh, prior to that point, it was saying that it thought that pharaoh and crates were cruel and unjustifiable and should be replaced. They had a major reversal of conscience for some reason that we're not aware of. <laughs> I wonder what that could be. Could it be the economic interests of the industry, perhaps? It's possible. See, that's that's the real downside of this decision, but we'll come to that in a moment. Yeah. Uh, so that they had a reversal of opinion and decided, oh, you know, actually, I think we should just keep these just uh, these these pharaoh and crates in the act is something that's in the in the regulations is something that's permissible. And that's what the court said was discordant with the intention behind the legislation, which was to phase out those practices and not continue to allow them if they didn't mesh with the uh, point of the legislation. Yeah, so by and large, I mean, we can go into the nitty gritty of this case in great, great detail, which we, we probably won't do. But but just by and large, I want to say this case is largely good news. If there's bad news from this case, there there's there's some things that give me pause about this case and the way in which the structure of the New Zealand law, A, leaves room for some similar types of finessing to occur anyway. And more importantly, while the judgment is largely great in that the judge really holds NAWAC to task, there is an aspect of the judgment that I think leaves room for backsliding in other cases. And I'll explain to you what I mean, you know, pretty briefly. So in this case, what really sunk NAWAC was what Camille just pointed to. The fact that previously, NAWAC had said these particular practices do not provide for the needs of animals. And then when Parliament came along and say, well, we're getting rid of this exceptional circumstances, economic consideration stuff, we're taking that section out. And we're going to say that any practice that doesn't comply with the needs of animals, right, it has to be phased out over 10 years. Well, NAWAC switched his tune and said, well, now they do comply. Well, that's the end of that, and therefore we're good. And the judge was like, not buying that at all, and rightfully so. What concerns me in the larger scheme of things is that even within the judgment, there is some discussion about two concepts that I think are problematic that the New Zealand courts are going to have to deal with at some point. One is the extent to which animal needs get measured within a particular economic paradigm, which the court does not really come to grips with. It just says, well, NAWAC said that this was impermissible, so I guess I'll agree with them that it was impermissible. That is a real issue, because the truth of the matter is, if you look at farrowing crates, just as an example, farrowing crates like the idea that farrowing crates are somehow required as a way of protecting baby piglet welfare is just 
completely and utterly ludicrous. It's, it's ludicrous if you think about pigs on an individual or small group basis. And the reason I know that it's ludicrous is because even in the decision, it points out that 50% of piggeries in New Zealand don't use farrowing crates. So I don't know how you can make this case that we need farrowing crates to save the life of baby piglets, otherwise they'll get crushed. And that's literally in the decision, right? Well, that's only true to the extent it's true at all, if you accept a paradigm whereby you need a certain number of pigs within a certain amount of space, which is, quite frankly, an economic concern and nothing else. So the court doesn't really deal with, in my opinion, the extent to which economic concerns can factor in to the decision about whether or not a practice is animal welfare compliant. So that's concern number one that I have. Concern number two is I found at several junctures a lot of discussion of what I find one of the most odious concepts in animal welfare, which is the animal welfare trade-off. That is a real problem. That is a problem that exists anywhere you are trying to balance different needs. What is the animal welfare trade-off? The long and short of it is this. There are certain types of practices on farms that will be better for animals in one way and worse for animals in another way. I mean, and to be honest, that's not... <laughs> COVID, <laughs> COVID provides a perfect example to explain what the animal welfare trade-off is. We'll call it the human welfare trade-off is. You ready for this, Camille? Camille, guess how many times I've caught a cold in the last eight months? Yeah, <laughs> probably the same as me, zero. <laughs> Zero. So like my overall health is arguably much better under COVID restrictions, right? Because I'm not in touch with anybody who has germs. This odious concept is often used in the animal welfare trade-off because what they say is, well, if we keep animals in sow stalls, we can monitor them much more closely, right? They're, they're less likely to bite each other. I'm like, I suppose all of these things are true, but the animal welfare trade-off as an idea is deeply problematic because it doesn't assess any degree of value to the various things that you're counterbalancing. So that's the second concern that I have. And here is the real third concern that brings these two things together. The judgment is great. Again, great job by the judge. And the judge ultimately decides that because of what NAWAC says, there was just no way that they were actually doing what they said to be doing. So therefore, they were inconsistent with the law. But if you read through to the end, uh, the animal New Zealand Animal Law Association and SAFE also suggested that the farrowing crates were impermissible in the way in which they applied the act, okay? Which means that these crates are inconsistent with the act itself, and the judge refused to go there because the judge effectively said that this is a balancing thing. And at the end of the day, like whether particular practices are consistent with the act's overall structure is going to be left to the best, you know, is going to be, there's going to be a fair degree of deference to the committee that makes that decision. And I'll tell you, Camille, as someone who has railed long and hard about NFAC and the idea of compromising on best welfare practices, that gives me pause and gives me reason to be concerned. Because as we know, 
compromises generally tend to take place on the backs of the animals. It's just the way it works. Once you start to say, well, we need to do a little of this and a little of that, what ends to end up happening is a lot on the backs of the animals, and farrowing crates are a perfect example. I mean, again, I wonder if, if, if NAWAC had simply said from day one that these farrowing crates are compliant, like what would have happened in this decision? Like, would the judge have just said, well, that's a deferrable decision that, you know, there are animal welfare trade-offs here and the legislature is best place to decide which of those trade-offs make sense. Like yeah. that sort of stuff worries me because I think in the long run, there's still a lot of different ways to manipulate what we're doing uh, in terms of animals. So that's just a concern that I have in that area. Yeah, well, it is the constant trade-off. Uh, the, the, the economic interests always weigh heavily in the legislature's mind when considering these things. And obviously on the committee, especially one that's weighted towards producers, which I'm not sure about the composition of NAWAC, if it is in the same way that the NFAC code is weighted toward producers and farmers who profit from using animals. But yeah, constant concern. Let, let me just say, Camille, that NFAC sets a spectacular level for board stackery that is really unbeatable. I want to give them the kudos because really no one can do what NANFAC does. They, they stack boards like it's nobody's business. <laughs> they always have a healthy, clear majority. Uh, NAWAC is not great either, but it's a much smaller board. So you get one or two animal welfare representatives and you're much closer to, you know, a percentage. Whereas in, in, in NFAC, it's like one in 20 is the general ratio. Anyway. <laughs> Well, whatever the weaknesses of the decision are, still a huge victory for mother pigs in New Zealand. And Peter, that brings us to our next story. Uh, our friends Can I in- just uh, ask one one quick thing? Very, very, very short. Just in our show notes, we're going to link to a uh, a uh, a commentary on the decision by uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, Marcelo Rodriguez Ferrere, who's also working with me on a, a PhD. And uh, I, I'm hoping that we're going to have Marcelo on in the new year, um, both to talk about his PhD research and also to talk about this decision. So we'll hopefully get a few more words on that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, so that brings us to our next piece out of New Zealand, which is a private prosecution of a rodeo participant. Um, So again, this was a private prosecution launched by our friends at the New Zealand Animal Law Association. Now, basically, a farmer was involved in um, using some cows for a rodeo event, and he went so far as to use electric prods on those cows to get them to leave the gate and go into an arena to perform and participate in rodeo events, um, rodeo events by, um, you know, rodeo spectators. So he used that electric prod, which is actually against the code of practice and, or perhaps, uh, yeah, the code of practice for rodeos in New Zealand. So uh, the Ministry of Primary Industries, which is the department of the government in charge of doing animal welfare inspections and enforcement, it investigated after there were complaints made against this uh, farmer for using an electric cattle prodder. And it, uh, the investigator actually apparently recommended that charges be laid, but the industry uh, decided, or the, the ministry rather, decided not to do so. So uh, the New Zealand Animal Law Association decided that wasn't good enough, and they decided to launch a private prosecution. 
So I think that case was tried back in June or uh, some some months ago, and the decision just came out, and lo and behold, the farmer was convicted on uh, two counts of uh, improperly using a prod, one in 2016 and one in 2017. So again, a pretty cool victory. It is, absolutely. I think uh, any time, again, uh, I should point out the differences very briefly between New Zealand and Canada, uh, the main one being that private prosecutions are alive and well in New Zealand. It's it's much easier to get a private prosecution uh, going in that jurisdiction than it is here in Canada for a variety of reasons we've explored before. But look, still, you've got to do it. You've still got to take the risk of a cost sanction award, and you've still got to actually make the uh, make the, uh, the the difficult choice to go after someone because they deserve to do it. And rodeo is an area that has traditionally been regarded as immune because the, the, the various groups that are responsible for prosecuting or investigating these matters have refused to do it. So certainly good on the NZALA anytime you can go after an area. Frankly, uh, Camille, that is the type of work for which a private prosecution, in my view, is most useful. It's not to go after the people who are beating up dogs and cats as much as people might like that to happen. Um, You know, the crowns and the courts are pretty good at dealing with those cases. We need to deal with situations that are a little more outside the pale, but nonetheless still cause a lot of harm to animals. Yeah, especially the ones where there's little political will on the part of enforcement agents to actually act. Uh, the NZALA points out in this article that uh, there's definitely an issues regarding rodeo. And in over 50 years, the ministry charged with doing this enforcement has never touched rodeos. So... Now there's a decision saying that certain rodeo activities are illegal, and I hope that this will spur the industry ministry to actually uh, take these cases more seriously and do more prosecutions themselves, which is always the hope in these situations. Here, here. Now we got more COVID talk, Camille. More COVID, 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 COVID and fur. Oh my God. Is it Jessica Scott Reed again? Are we just, is this, she's not even here, and it's like she's dominating the episode now. <laughs> She's been productive lately. So, uh, you know, I, I had a great conversation on our last episode with Leslie Fox of the Fur Bears. And Jessica wrote a piece with some of Leslie's comments in the Globe and Mail. So she wrote about why Denmark's COVID-19 outbreak that's linked to fur farms should be of concern to us here in Canada, too. So situation in Denmark, uh, at least a dozen people have now contracted a new mutated version of covid that actually comes from mink. So minks are interesting because they're the only species of animals known to be able to both like catch COVID from us and then reinfect us with COVID, including with mutated versions. Now that's a concern because that could reduce the effectiveness of a vaccine, which now seems to be on the horizon. So Denmark's actually, sadly, culling tens of millions of farmed mink. And uh, many other countries have been looking at doing this as well, like Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, Italy, Greece, and the U.S. These are all countries where mink have been found to uh, have contracted COVID. So Jessica decided to dig into the situation a little bit in Canada and find out what was happening here. And it turns out not a heck of a lot. Uh, the provinces that responded to inquiries from her or from the fur bearers basically said, oh, yes, we're monitoring the situation very closely and trying to make sure that minks don't have respiratory problems on the farms. Well, Camille, to be fair, I think they've ordered that the minks should have plexiglass shields in between their cages (laughs) and should be only sitting two to a table. So in fairness, Camille, some stuff is being done. Six feet apart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's a huge joke. We jest, but it's not funny. 
No, it's not funny, but it is a huge joke. I mean, according to Leslie Fox, some of these fur farms might have 20,000 to even 60,000 animals. And you know how many staff they have, Peter, at these places? Typically, just a few. So the government's basically saying, yeah, we trust the fur industry to have like two or three people walking around with a clipboard. And they're supposed to somehow individually evaluate all these animals to see if they oh have COVID. God. All these arguments are so stupid and so familiar. As you're saying that, I'm remembering the live export sheep stuff from Australia when they were talking about the great new measures to include two vets on a ship. And I'm like, there's 20,000 sheep. There's 20,000 sheep. It's so ridiculous. Hell? It's so ridiculous. Right, Camille, we're going to do it. You and me. You take 10,000. I'll take 10,000. I'll meet you back here by lunch. Yeah, and I'll see you <laughs> next <just> year. Like, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> <laughs> the numbers are so ridiculous. Uh, well, so uh, what I you know love. What? Uh, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. Well, what I love about Jessica's piece is that it really puts both the cruelty, but also the recklessness of the mink industry in Canada on full display. Now, it seems to have touched a nerve with the fur industry, Peter, because the very next day we see this piece through post media. The headline mm. says, No sign of COVID 19 on Canada's mink farms, but growers are taking no chances. And it alleges that farmers are clamping down on biosecurity protections to try to thwart the virus. I don't know if you read this piece, but to me, it was amazing. I mean, as Jessica pointed out, at least her piece was published as an opinion article, which it clearly was. This is an opinion article disguised as a news story. It basically just quotes Alan Herskovici, a fur industry spokesperson, who talks about how great everything is on fur farms in Canada and how seriously they take it. Uh, it really is troubling to me that there was no contrary voice included in this article whatsoever. I think we need to uh, do our first ever. I was just thinking as you were doing this, I'm like, because again, I mean, the bottom line here is we're just going to pitch the same thing that we've said before and before, uh, before and again, that, um, you know, it's going to be a while before... Um, we are able to address what I call the major animal use issues of the day, the dairies, the beefs, the fishing industry. These are big problems with many complex considerations. Um, to me, mink farms are little problems with very not complex considerations. And it's like, I wanted to say, like, to me, the answer is the same. We've raised this before with seal hunt and other horrible industries that really have no great purpose. Buy them out, Camille. We're going to like simply, we're going to start a new, we're going to have our first ever pawn order song. I was just thinking, Asbury, it's like, buy them out. <laughs> buy them out it's gonna be like the pawn order fundraising song because like every time i read these things it's like it is just it's astonishing to me that we continue to hang on to these dinosaur industries that have no economic impact of any major concern and yet we're just continuing to a risk our health for god's sake camille i'm vegan but i'm at risk yeah also people can before. wear wear fur coats <laughs> It's just so ludicrous. Like you can't, what's so annoying about it is like, okay, like, like, you know, I don't even want to dignify at the moment, the food argument, but I, I do recognize that the considerations are more complex with food. They just are. There's more, there's just, if nothing else, it's, there's a much, obviously a, a much huger public use of that particular product that you can't just turn around and ban tomorrow. But like, who the hell are we protecting with the mink farms? It's like, it's like the order 
orcas. It, like, who the hell are we protecting at Marineland? Like, seriously? Like, can we just ban this? Oh, speaking of which, well, we'll come to that in a bit. But I mean, it is amazing to me. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, the Ottawa Citizen article, the, the Post Media one, rather, it says there's only 70 mink farms left in Canada. That's from the fur industry. That's probably more recent than the 98 farms cited by Stats Canada in 2018. So we're talking about 70 farms and about 2 million. Buy them out. I think we need a new out. hobby horse sound. <laughs> for the buy them out, out. It's the buy them out song. <laughs> like, that's what we need. Buy them out. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's it's time. It's time to buy them out. And shout out, too, oh, to uh, another piece that came out just a couple of days later by our friend Michelle Hammers at World Animal Protection. She she wrote an op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen calling on Canada mink farms to be shut down over the potential COVID link. So I hope this issue is picking up steam because something's got to give. And guess what she says, Camille? Buy them out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Help the industry make the transition to something else. Yes, I hate to say it, that like it, it galls me on a certain level that I, you know, my hard-earned tax dollars are going to go. But that's just the way these things work. You can't encourage an industry to exist for all this time. You got to buy them out. You got to transition them. But once they're bought out, no more. Like that is it. Then you have to you have to follow up the buyout with a ban. Like those two things have to go hand in hand. Buy them out and ban them. Buy them out and ban them. Buy them out and ban them. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, our last Speaking news story. Speaking of. <laughs> Speaking of. Okay. Well, our, um, uh, yeah, speaking of. So if you're interested <laughs> in the fur industry, we have a show for you to watch. It's called The Trial of Malcolm Klimowicz. Um, he's an activist who attended a bunch of fur farms a couple of years ago at night, took some pretty troubling footage showing horrible conditions, um, minks with open wounds, minks, uh, you know, living on top of piles of feces, maggots, just awful, awful stuff that's very standard in the fur industry. He is being prosecuted for break and enter, and his trial is taking place November 30th to December 4th at the Kingston Courthouse, but it's taking place online. So you can tune mm. in and watch his lawyers put the fur industry on trial. Fantastic. Look forward to that. We'll post a link in the show notes where you can register and find out more information. Now, just one final good news story before we move on to our main topic, Peter. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from some folks in the Longoy region of Quebec. Longoy. Longoy. Camille, take it, take it from the Montrealer. It's Longoy. Whoops, sorry to offend. <laughs> Longoy. Uh, planned to kill 15 deer in a park, in a city park, because it said they were eating too much of the vegetation. And as you can imagine, people got pretty mad about this because nobody wants to see deers killed for the sake of convenience. So there was a petition, there were lots of news stories, there were protests, and the city backed down from that plan and it decided to relocate them instead, which is what they should have done all along if there was a concern instead of going the lethal route. So I just want to give a shout out to everyone who was involved in this campaign. It proves that activism works and when there's enough public pressure, officials will respond. Are you looking for all the basics for your pantry, but want Canadian organic and natural brands that believe in animal compassion and sustainable eating? Elemento is the Canadian-owned online food market you've been looking for. Elemento carries Canadian brands such as Everland, New World, and the brand new Bliss Balls, which I've tried and love. Elemento believes that everyone deserves a kitchen packed with nutrient-rich, organic, and plant-based foods. Get any of their hundreds of products delivered to your door at elemento.com. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O dot com. 
or find endless types of recipes and sustainability tips on social media at Elemento Market. Use code PAWS15, that's P-A-W-S-1-5, to receive 15% off your next order. All right, and for our main segment this episode, Peter, I'm really excited for this discussion about the latest animal protection, nay, animal rights legislation to be introduced in Canada. We're going to talk about Senator Marie Sinclair's new bill, uh, which has a very long title, uh, but it's known colloquially as the Jane Goodall Act. Well, it's not every day we get amendments to the criminal code and certainly not proposed amendments um, that are this significant. It's, it, it feels a lot like Christmas, Camille. It's early Christmas with this bill. I mean, this bill is chock full of animal rights goodies, like, oh my God, I don't know where to start. <laughs> Aside from <laughs> saying, well, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna start pessimistic. I'll stop right there well, because, uh, yeah. Let's start by saying that we could easily have given Senator Sinclair easily. the hero award for this, you know, for, for this bill, but for his entire body of work, really. He could have been In the fact, hero of our year. In fact, let's just speak very briefly. Let's just speak very briefly about that um, before getting into the bill itself. Um, what, what I was saying just at the outset was it's not every day, and quite frankly, it's almost like not any day that you have uh, bills um, that are trying to amend the criminal code in a positive way for animals. And that just doesn't happen very often. You know, since we've been doing this, I've seen it three or four times. A few of them, I think only one or two have been passed. Uh, it, it's hard. It's really hard to make this change. And um, Marie Sinclair, quite frankly, is really just a hero to animals as well as obviously large other groups of Canadians um, for the work that he does and, and really goes to show what one dedicated person in a position of power can do. Yeah, and we've, we've spoken about Senator Sinclair before on this podcast because, of course, he was a sponsor of the uh, bill that outlawed whale and dolphin captivity in this country. It was originally put forward by Senator Wilfred Moore, but the bill languished for so long in the Senate because of conservative senators who tried to block it that Senator Moore retired and Senator Sinclair took it over and he fought for that legislation until the end. He, um, of course, was the former chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He's a former judge. He's an indigenous person and uh, just a champion for many, many segments of society, as you point out, Peter, but increasingly for animals. And it's been just a pleasure to watch him do this work and to work with him to some extent. We should also, uh, while we're, uh, you know, obviously this bill is going through the Senate, while we're throwing out kudos, um, we should mention that uh, the Senate bill will also be introduced into the House. Um, I'm trying to remember which conservative member of parliament is that, Camille, who's <laughs> going to introduce this bill. I was trying to remember it. Uh, it can't be um, our old friend because he's no longer there. So, Bob um, He's. He, I oh, know he wanted to. Oh, for Bob. I miss him. I know he wanted to do it. He was very keen to get this in. Um, I mean, let's just say that... Uh, sorry, that's going to be Nathaniel Erskine Smith, of course, who's going to introduce the bill into the House. And, and, of course, kudos to him for his continued efforts on these sorts of issues. I mean, I, I, I cannot wait for this to hit the house so I can start hearing phrases like the thin end of the wedge and what's coming next because, you know, we'll talk about this bill in more detail, but 
This is an ambitious bill. And to be perfectly honest, it's a very smart bill. It's really smart. It's so smart that I don't see it getting passed. And I say it's smart because... Unlike um, what we've seen with other animal uh, uh, um, protection legislation or animal rights legislation in the past, this bill sows the seeds for its own expansion, which is why I can see those thin end of the wedge type critiques being raised all over the place as to, well, what's next if we pass this bill? Are dogs going to have the right to drive? (laughs) Yeah. How am I going to feed my family? Are you going to let chickens vote in elections? <laughs> what kind of crazy... Who are we doing anyway? <laughs> anyway, let's, sorry, <laughs> listeners, we'll stop yeah. that. <laughs> All right, so we'll let's get down to the details of this bill. Yeah. So it's called Bill S-218. That's the number it's assigned. And if you want to check it out, we'll link to it so you can see the actual text. But Senator Sinclair introduced the bill at an amazing press conference with Dr. Jane Goodall. <laughs> And he named it in her honor because it protects some of the animals whom she has fought for for most of her life, specifically great apes and elephants and potentially other um, domestic, non-domesticated animals let's, kept let's in captivity. Let's leave that part. Let's start because let's start, that's, that's the biggie that I want to come to. So let's start with what its stated objective is, Camille. Let's focus on that. Right. So it, it's very much in line with the bill last year, the banned whale and dolphin captivity. It says that you can no longer keep great apes. So that would include orangutans, chimpanzees, and gorillas in captivity in Canada. There's some limited exemptions there related to legitimate conservation requirements or best interests of the animals. So for rescue and rehabilitation and sanctuaries and um, issues like that. It also, Peter, outlaws uh, the breeding of those animals in captivity and the import and export of them to and from the country. So that's one basket of things it does. So all of that is very consistent with the whale and dolphin ban, similar language. It's- yeah, let's just actually, let's just go through that very briefly, um, because like what it does is it just like amends section 445.22. This is the first thing that it does. We're going to come to the others. But the, the most easy for people to understand is it's already an offense to keep a cetacean in captivity, and they will add the words great ape, elephant, or um, designated animal, which we'll come back to. Um, and so they essentially, and they do the same thing with breeding. Um, and they, they do the same thing with possessing or seeking to obtain reproductive material. Those restrictions already exist for cetaceans. They're going to extend them to great apes and elephants. By the way, Camille, I don't know if you noticed this, but one thing that caught my eye, I don't think it's a big deal, but quite frankly, um, I would probably close this uh, fix. The, the term great ape is not defined in the act. I was a little bit surprised by that. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't uh, noticed that previously. Um, yeah, because that cetacean, mm-hmm. of course, is defined. Um, and great ape, I mean, I know what a great ape is, but it's not exactly a term of art. They're only, f- just for those who don't know, by the way, um, great apes are not all the primates. They're, uh, they're confined to four species, as far as I understand it, which is gorilla, uh, uh, chimpanzee, bonobo, and orangutan. Those are the four species that uh, qualify as great apes. Hmm. Interesting. I wasn't sure yeah, about strange, bonobos because he he didn't discuss bonobos in his his speech in Parliament when he introduced it in the Senate. 
but but they they they, they clearly are. They they were. They, I I just rely upon uh, if you remember the aborted UN convention on the law the rights of great apes that was attempted uh, several years ago by a, a group of people in the U.S. and I had always understood those were the four species that qualify. Hmm. Well, um, I guess we'll see. Can I, yeah, and. Um, you know, there's so many things to talk about with this, and you've just said the mean one. By the way, I like I like the little additions just as much as the big additions. I don't know if you noticed, and we could just like literally sift through this, and I don't want to get sidetracked, but since we just mentioned 445.22, there's a little addition. I don't know if you you saw, I'm sure you did, Camille, because you're, you're your eagle eyes are spotting all these things. Um, it is now an offense to breed or impregnate a cetacean. It will later be an offense, obviously, to breed or impregnate cetaceans, great apes, elephants, or designated animals, or fail to take reasonable care to prevent the breeding <laughs> or impregnation of cetaceans. <laughs> I like that. Get rid of the accidental breeding defense. Yeah, yeah. That that just takes I just away put a loophole. Them in a pen. I just put them in a pen. I don't know. I I can't help what happens. (laughs) Yeah, totally. That's a good one. Yeah. So, you know, just to put this in in context, Peter, it's Mm. probably helpful to our listeners to just explain a little bit about how many of these animals are in Canada and where they are. So, um, actually, I don't think I even have the numbers in front of me right now, but there are over a dozen elephants. I think it's in the 20s elephants. Yeah, Um, I had that here, too. Mm. Most of them are Sorry, at... I have it here. It's 33 great apes in captivity at the moment. Um, although, again, it doesn't mention bonobos, but there just might not be bonobos in Canada. Um, 33 great apes are in captivity and 20 elephants in captivity. And as we know, uh, although sadly we expect that to drop to 19 within the next little while, but um, that 20 elephants in captivity, most of them are at African Lion Safari, which is one park. Yeah, that, that's a park in Ontario. It's kind of between Toronto and Hamilton, I think, which um, allows the breeding of elephants or perhaps actively breeds them. I'm not sure. It takes um, it, it forces those elephants to perform for humans. There's videos on YouTube that you can look up of them performing silly tricks. It's completely demeaning. Uh, there was actually an attack by an elephant on a trainer last summer at African Lion Safari where someone suffered a serious injury. And as you mentioned, Peter, your, your reference to Lucy the elephant at the Edmonton Zoo, she's, I believe, the northernmost elephant in the world and not in great health. People have been trying for years to move her, and we've talked about those court cases before. And then we've got a number of elephants at, uh, I think, three different, two or three different zoos in Quebec as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the context of the animals. Obviously, not a huge number of animals. Um, And by the way, this would not be, um, um, you know, it certainly wouldn't be um, unprecedented um, um, law. There's a similar provision. It's not quite as far ranging as this one in the New Zealand Animal Welfare Act, which forbids, um, you know, essentially having great apes in captivity, except for when it's in their best interest. So there are there are similar bills. I believe Brazil or there's another country that has a similar um, um, restriction of this type. I think Spain has introduced some restrictions and um, the United States has done so as well with respect to chimpanzees for sure and possibly other great apes as well. But there has been some international movement, it's fair to say, around these types of species. So that's important. 
Yeah, so you want to go through some of the highlights, Camille? Because there's quite a few, um, aside from expanding, because if that's all it was, look, if that's all it was, it would be exciting enough. If it was just simply, let's expand it to great apes and elephants, I'd be like, kudos to you, Murray Sinclair. But they're going for bigger... (laughs) Uh, bigger fish to play with. What's the, there's no bigger <laughs> fish to fry. What is that one? Bigger I can never plantains they, to fry. I don't know. All what, right. Bigger, bigger tofu to fry. to fry. That's right. There are bigger plantains to fry here because I looked at this and I was, I have wow written on the side of my, uh, uh, thing several times. So let's just start with a couple of them. I mean, first of all, I always like language that, um, suggests that the, the exception for example, to having animals in captivity has now been amended to, first of all, it's got to be a license. She's got to be a license to have an exception to have one of these animals in captivity. But obviously it has to be authorized to keep them in captivity in the best interests of the animal, which is always my favorite clause with regard to individual welfare and conservation of the species. To be honest, that looks like it was taken right out of the New Zealand Animal Welfare Act. That's the same language they have there. And that's great. Like that is, it is, it is so hard to overcome that with the standard human interests of, well, we need this for behavioral observations or scientific this or whatever, this, that, or the other thing, no more. Like it is now the only time you can keep the animal is when you can show that it's in the best interest of the animal. Yeah, that's that's very, very important. And, and the best interests, uh, you know, the, the first time we saw that enter into Canadian law was last year with the cetacean ban. And so it's perpetuating that language, which, as you point out, Peter, I think is just incredibly important. It's saying that the interests of those animals outweigh whatever interest humans might have in keeping them captive, no matter what those interests are. Um, It's really about their welfare and the conservation of the species. Now, some people have asked me, I did a ton of radio interviews when the bill was first introduced, and a couple of the hosts asked, is the conservation issue something that can be used as a loophole? And I'm not too concerned about it. I mean, I think theoretically it could be used as a loophole, but... Uh, I think the requirement to seek and receive a license is significant. So it's not just that you can claim you're doing conservation research and get an exemption by your own declaration from this legislation. And I also think it's going to be very challenging for zoos, at least the ones who have these animals currently in Canada, to show any connection between captivity of those animals and conservation work. Because frankly, uh, that's not the primary reason that those animals are kept in captivity. Now, I don't want to comment on every single animal and the specific uses to which a zoo is putting them in Canada, because I simply don't have access to that information. But in general, it's extremely rare for legitimate conservation work to be done at zoos vis-a-vis introducing those animals back into the wild. I also think that the language of the the exception makes it hard, and I say that because I remember commenting on this on the in the um, in the in the New Zealand context when a similar question arose. Like when it, when it says in the best interests of the animal, that is the animal, and then it says with regard to individual welfare and conservation of the species. So I don't, I, I, I think the idea of this is to set an individualistic approach to recognize that these animals are individuals, they have sentience, they have significance, and I don't think you can overwhelm that based on the language of the section any more than you could overwhelm a human's rights by saying, well, it's good for everybody. 
right? And I'm not saying you can never do that. I mean, this COVID example is a good example of where liberty of individuals can be set aside um, because of the importance of the collective. Well, at least in theory, right? <laughs> not in Alberta, where everything is a voluntary decision. But, you know, in theory, nonetheless, I do think that it is just that type of language makes it a hell of a lot harder to just go on with business as usual. It's a real shift from how the laws often looked at the interests of animals. I mean, there's been some recognition historically of conservation and, and why that matters. And that's why we have things like the Species at Risk Act or Provincial Endangered Species legislation. But you're right. This is definitely novel and hugely important. Oh, and by the way, Camille, just in case we're worried about the best interests of the animal, who do we know who might be able to advocate on behalf of the best interests of the animal? <laughs> like we're coming to the best parts. Of yeah, this we are. Before we get <laughs> be, before we get well, to the best parts, though. Yeah, we've been let's save the, the best lead, for though. last. Yes, we have been. Let's save the best for last. <laughs> and there's there's sort of two other important things that the bill does. The, the first one is is not incredibly complicated, but it it would enable the federal government. It would give that. Oh, this is the best, Camille. I think it's a battle between this and the other one. But oh, go you ahead. think? Wow. Are you talking about four forty five point three? Yeah, four forty five point three is huge. Well, okay. I, well, I let's let's talk about it then. <laughs> Four forty five point three. I think they refer to it as the Noah clause. Is that what they call it? That's right. That's right. I think we should call it the Yasmin Nakuda clause because that's <laughs> what it seems like it is to me, right? Is is that not correct? It's essentially the long awaited method that we've been talking about about recognizing that there are concerns with the keeping of exotic animals by private individuals. And this provides a mechanism to, as far as I can tell, designate animals and say that they can no longer be kept in captivity by private individuals. Am I missing something? No, that's exactly it. It says the cabinet can may, after consulting with professionals in animal science, veterinary medicine, or animal care, and representatives of groups whose objects include the promotion of animal welfare, just going to raise my hand right here, <laughs> that cabinet can designate certain species of animals as uh, no longer permissible to keep in captivity, similar to great apes, elephants, and cetaceans. So this is and huge. Japanese macaques. Like, let's start there. Big, like, I'm big just, cats. You know, just, Senator just, Sinclair just, specifically mentioned in his speech that he'd seen Tiger King. He was concerned about big cats being kept in captivity. There's a long list of animals who just shouldn't I mean, be kept what, behind cages. What an idea, right? Recognize that the underlying, I mean, it's just such good lawmaking. I, I'll be honest. I'm it, on balance. I'm more excited about this than the next one. And the next one's pretty damn exciting. <laughs> but I'm just like, to me, the recognition that we get out of this ad hoc step-by-step decision-making and we use the cetacean bill, which passed unanimously as a way to pass a more slightly ambitious bill and then recognize that the problem with exotic animals is not confined to cetaceans, great apes, and elephants. There are other situations and we can't keep coming back to Parliament, you know, year after year to get this stuff done. I mean, if we want to, you know, recognize that certain people who are jurisdiction hopping and I'm not going back to back and just let me say for the record, I'm sure Yasmin Makuda is on my Christmas list again this year because I've got something to say. But like, you know, her insane. Hold on, Peter. I think you've got to explain who she is for people who don't listen to every single episode. Ikea monkey people. She Ikea was the Ikea monkey. monkey, quote, mom. 
She's the Ikea monkey him. mom who, who the story of the Ikea monkey is enough to make you want to vomit. But what makes you want to vomit more is when she realized she couldn't keep her monkeys in Toronto. She just moved out of the jurisdiction. And we've been talking about this for years. I think we've been, pro, we've been pushing for a provincial wide ban, but I mean, either provincial or federal, federal being even better because we need a ban and we need to recognize that as far as I'm concerned, I'm not convinced what, that, that, that there's a, a meaningful distinction between individual primates either and i think there's a real question about whether or not these primates should be in captivity now let me just say that you know first of all this is not a law yet this is a bill second of all the more you start to push into other sorts of animals the more you're going to get resistance from what i like to call god i hate to call them this the established zoos that still seem to have more impact because you realize like right now we're talking about uh cetaceans not in zoos, correct? Nope. Gone. Um, elephants, for the large part, not in zoos. I mean, Lucy is a special case. Is, is Lucy, I thought there's, um, aside from African Lion Safari, there's one other zoo I thought that uh, The Granby Zoo yeah. in Toronto. Yeah, but Granby's in you know, Quebec. Oh, sorry, sorry, Quebec. What I meant to say is actually that the Toronto Zoo used to have three elephants. No, but they're gone. They got sent to a sanctuary yeah. in California yeah. after council Cal- voted. Cal- Calgary too. So, yep. I mean, so, so elephants, the zoos have sort of come around on. Okay, elephants, right? Great apes. There are great apes, by my recollection, uh, Camille, at Toronto Zoo. But yeah, I don't think you're talking about huge numbers. It's chimpanzees, I believe. Uh, or is it gorilla? I'm not sure about chimpanzees. There's orangutans for sure. And apparently one orangutan uh, was, has been at the Toronto Zoo indoors since 1974. That was an orangutan specifically mentioned by Senator Sinclair in his speech for the bill. So, you know, they still are in zoos, but there's few of them. We, we heard the numbers. And what did you say it was, Peter, 33? Yeah, it's a very small number. Fewer and, than and the cetaceans. Like, there, there were about 60 cetaceans. It's not as if people are getting more. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is um, as much as I'd like to see this used as an expansive way to deal with exotic animals, and maybe those regulations may sadly need to differentiate between uh, private hands and public hands. But if nothing else, this will start the conversation. If you start talking about tigers and monkeys and other animals, okay, zoos will react to that because the zoos don't want to lose their big cats any more than they want to lose their monkeys or their elephants in the first place but at a certain point this type of legislation will get the discussion started and hopefully uh, end some of the crazy anomalies we have with wild animals in this country yeah and i'll just add that this is very much in line with public opinion we've seen a pretty significant shift over the last decade in terms of what people think about keeping animals in zoo and in, in aquariums and captivity and most canadians now say that they're opposed to keeping animals in zoos so i think that uh we saw some manifestation of that with the whale ban last year we're seeing it taken one step further with this legislation. So, okay, now before we move on to the pièce de résistance, uh, let me just (laughs) mention some international trade uh, provisions. In addition to the ones we've mentioned about importing and exporting live animals and reproductive materials, the bill also makes it an offense to import elephant ivory. So it's much more restrictive provisions with respect to elephant ivory trade than we have right now. It's closer to the UK model, which is very strong. And it makes it an offense to bring elephant trophies into the country. So this would be typically if a hunter goes to a 
you know, elephant hunting trip in Africa, guns down one of those majestic creatures and brings things like tusks or feet back home as trophies. That is no longer allowed. So take that Safari Club International. Well, once it's enacted, of course. But my question then is, Camille, isn't that going to scuttle Donald Trump Jr.'s plan of moving up to Canada after the... No? Oh, please, God, like... don't let him in. <laughs> 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 he uh, likes those tusks, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He likes to shoot the animals. Oh, what a guy. Yeah. All right, well, I agree with you. That is some great stuff. Camille, let's talk about... The, the, the part of the bill that really warms our heart because we're really at our core narcissistic people. <laughs> I don't know what narcissism has to do with the bill. I mean, I know you're a narcissist, Peter. But <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we saw the words animal advocates and we got very, very excited. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, another provision that they're inserting here into the criminal code is the ability of animals to have some sort of legal representation in court. So let me explain the mechanism through which they dun, do this. Dun, dun, dun. I feel like every time we say that, there should be like, dun, 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 because yeah, this is like the holy grail. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the holy grail we've been, we've been talking about. Of all the things in this bill, the idea of representation is just like, oh my God. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, you know, little background. Animals do not have not yet been found to have legal standing in court. So when there's protections for them under the law, they don't become rights because there's no way for those animals to legally enforce those protections by going to court themselves. But what this bill does that's a little bit different and uh, really exciting kind of unique way of trying to bring those interests more into the rights sphere is it says that if somebody's convicted of illegally confining an elephant or a great ape, or a whale or dolphin, the court can uh, introduce someone called an animal advocate at the sentencing stage to make representations that are designed to protect the best interests of that animal, again, with uh, regard to the individual welfare and conservation of the species. So the first thing it does is it says that the court can issue a bunch of different orders to protect that animal. So modifying the physical conditions in which the animal is kept. So maybe that'd be something like, okay, you can continue keeping this animal at this location, but you need to give them five times as much space. The court can order that the animal be relocated to another facility or a sanctuary, which is important because there are sanctuaries now for all types of animals that this bill would implicate, whales, dolphins very soon. Um, great apes for sure, and elephants for sure in the States already. The court can order a modification of the social conditions in which the animal's kept. You know, that's interesting when we talk about Lucy the elephant, Peter, who's all by herself and has been for over a decade in Edmonton. Or the court can order that the ownership of the animal be forfeited and surrendered to an animal welfare authority named in the order. So that's pretty cool. But... The real exciting part is the ability of an animal advocate to make representations in court. So, you know, what it says is that um, provinces can essentially potentially point people, appoint people who would become animal advocates for the purposes of this bill. Uh, a person who works for an NGO in the province where the prosecution is taking place could be a designated animal advocate, or a person who's a vet or a scientist or a professional in animal care could be that advocate. And if the court, if the province doesn't do it, the courts can do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's stated in the definition. So if the provinces like Alberta are like, screw this, we're not doing it. Well, that's okay. In an individual case, the courts can just appoint someone who qualifies. Yeah, not the worst thing at all. And yeah, so the court can bring this person into the courtroom and their job is to make submissions about the best interests of the animal and show to the court why what they're asking them to do is is the best thing for that individual animal. We're going back here to the individual interests of that single animal and not broader conservation concerns or concerns of the owner. This is really about what's best for the animal. And God love it, you're not dependent on the prosecutor to do their job, which I love too. So that's under section 447.02 that the order um, is is needs to be considered whether or not the prosecutor wants it. It's not just the prosecutor. The animal advocate can come forward and speak on behalf of the interests of the animal and um, bring an application to make sure that the offender carries out any action that's necessary in the best interest of the animal. So this is huge. This is huge. As I said, animals don't have standing in court. I'm not aware really of of anything like this, Peter. Um, Me neither. And quite frankly, if there's one part of this bill that I'd like to see expanded, it's that one. Like to me, you know, what we're seeing with some of the other cases where bringing animal uh, uh, abusers to justice is so troublesome is the fact that there's no one there to speak on behalf of the animal in any real sense. And it seems to me I would love if this were ever enacted to just see this transposed into any other sentencing or, you know, prohibition order type situation for an animal abuser because then once again, you have somebody there to speak to the needs of the animal and hopefully ensure that those types of uh, uh, um, proactive measures are undertaken to ensure that the animal is treated in the best way possible. Yeah. And what I like about this, too, is it's not just about, you know, sentencing someone to jail and imposing orders on a defendant or a person who's being convicted, rather. It's not just about punishing them. This is really about the best interests of the animals and moving forward. What is the best way to make sure that they're doing okay? So animal focused and so uh, heartwarming because really this is this is what these are the types of laws you know we've been hoping for uh, in terms of you know really making meaningful change for animals in the long run. Now, this still has to get through the Senate and the House, and I'm aware. Um, you know, I seem to recall um, Camille that the House, when uh, the last time someone brought a bill that attempted to make major changes for animal, the House uh, mentioned that this was going to be folded into their detailed uh, review and revamp of the criminal code, which I believe is scheduled. I've seen it on the schedule, Camille. It's scheduled for 2067. Yeah, April 27, 2067. I won't be there, of course. I'll be <laughs> dead by that time, Camille. But nonetheless, I'm sure this revamp of the criminal code is any day now. Any day now. It's coming. It's any coming. day now. Any day now. That's literally what they said. And like, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if one of the objections to this, the hypocritical objection from my guess is the party governing in the moment will be, well, this is a good idea because, you know, the liberals are not going to poo-poo this out of hand. But what worries me is they'll say, well, these, these changes are far-reaching. And before we make far-reaching, we need to study and carefully look, which is just, you know, speak, double speak for we're not going to do it uh, because that's what happened in 2015. And I have a great deal of concern about any attempts to delay uh, meaningful procedures. But I mean... I, 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 I'm going to go to bed saying a prayer uh, for this bill every night from now on. And uh, let's just say I, I expect it to figure prominently in our Christmas giving list. But um, 
What what are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I am incredibly optimistic about this bill. I think it's got a lot going for it. First of all, you're right that bills to amend the criminal code have typically died a slow and painful death or a quick and painful death in some cases. But this bill is substantially similar in a lot of ways to the whale and dolphin bill, which did get through, that was held up in the Senate for ages by some arcane rules that let certain senators like <clears throat> conservative leader Don Platt uh, gum up the works and make sure that the bills didn't get debated or voted on. Now, I think that there might be some rule changes coming to the Senate that will stop him and others from doing that. I hear there's a lot of support for it in the Senate, which is pretty exciting. And uh, then you've got the support of Canadians behind it. I think what we saw with the whale and dolphin bill was just an outpouring of excitement and support. And I can't imagine but that this will attract the same uh, interest and excitement. I also think the fact that Senator Sinclair has put it forward is huge. He is a titan and well-respected by, you know, everyone. Um, he's also taken care to connect this effort to his work on reconciliation. The preamble to the bill actually says, whereas the phrase, all my relations, expresses an indigenous understanding that all life forms of creation are interconnected and interdependent. Then he goes on to talk about how science and empathy and justice require us to respect the biological and ecological characteristics and needs of animals. And he says a lot more beautiful stuff that I won't read. You can read it for yourself if you want to via the link in the show notes. But I think uh, Canadians are more concerned than ever before about reconciliation. And I think considering this bill as an aspect of reconciliation is also a huge bonus for it. Couldn't agree more. Wow, it's uh, considering the doom and gloom we've been raining down on our pawn order listeners in past weeks. This is a, a really, really, this is about as nice a, a gift as we can give. Um, this is really, I, I mean, I don't want to overstate the matter, but like, I mean, I was kind of excited about the cetaceans bill when it came out, but I'll be honest, I wasn't doing back handsprings because to me, the cetacean bill was a very limited bill designed to deal with problem. Though I remember at the time we talked about it and said, look, this is where you start. And uh, if this is the buildup on where we start, you know, color me excited because that's really great news. This is the type of thing that I think um, is honestly one of the few bright lights in Canadian animal law history in terms of really trying to do something different. So, I mean, it remains to be seen whether it's going to be passed, but even if it isn't passed, it's, it's, it seems to me it's one of the most ambitious and innovative and interesting um, attempts to help make a change for animals in this country, even if on the surface, let's be clear, the number of animals affected on the surface, right, before the regulations come into play, is relatively small. But I don't think that diminishes from what is a, an innovative and important piece of legislation. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm very excited about this. And I think it shows where we're headed as a country. I mean, we historically have not seen amazing federal progress on animals. We've seen very, very poor progress or lack thereof, sometimes regressive policies and regulations from the feds. But that's starting to change. The last session of Parliament did pass three animal protection bills, the whale bill, a bill to ban shark fin trade, and the bill to um, tighten up the bestiality offense, as well as animal fighting. So things are starting to move. And if this bill is any indication, they're starting to move fast. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'd like to see uh, 
some of these things instituted by the house, but yes, nonetheless, I, I, I'll take it any which way I can get it. And, and if it takes going through the Senate to get these things moving, um, that, that, that's great. And I think that's, uh, really important. So now we just need to buy out COVID, far- uh, buy out COVID farms, <laughs> <laughs> mink farms, buy, out. Same buy thing. them out, Camille, Same thing. buy them out, buy them out. Buy them out. That's our next plan. Buy them out. Buy them out. Shut out them the down. <laughs> Buy them out. Shut them down. Anyway, great stuff and a great note to uh, you know to wind up this segment on. Heroes and zeros. And now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show: heroes and zeros. Heroes and zeros. Heroes and zeros. Oh my God, this was another one, Camille, where it was like a bloodbath to choose our hero and our zero. Peter and I actually had a fight about it. We actually did have a little fight behind the scenes. We won't uh, deal with that. Look, let's uh, deal with the hero. Um, um, unfortunately, uh, Camille, I was unable to get the name. So this uh, this wonderful jurist who I'm about to name shall be uh, nameless um, for our hero. But our hero comes out of a recent case out of North Carolina. And you may have heard about this case. It is not, strictly speaking, an animal case because it is essentially a nuisance lawsuit against Smithfields. Oh, Smithfields, Camille. Smithfields, the pork hog producing company in North Carolina that just sets up these massive CAFOs and um, essentially despoils all the land around them. And this particular lawsuit had really, um, it's fair to say, I don't think it had really much to do with what was going on with the animals, which is what makes our hero so interesting. This was a lawsuit by neighbors of the uh, Smiths Fields who said, you've essentially ruined our life with your you know, feces lagoons, rendering plants going on at all times, the smell, the poisoning of the environment. We are going to sue you for this. And um, they won their lawsuit, Camille, and won uh, a gajillion dollars or a lot of money, at least from Smith Fields. And what happened this week, the news hook, is that this went up on appeal. That's right. So Smithfield did not like being hit with a, I think it was a $50 million plus punitive damage award initially by the jury. And maybe it was reduced by the trial judge for some reason, but um, it was still a significant amount and they did not like it. So they appealed on a number of bases and uh, thankfully they lost that appeal. So I actually did take a look at the judgment, Peter. I haven't read the hmm. whole thing because it's 144 pages and who's got time for that? But oh, it was but we can figure out who the judge is. I forgot you yeah, do have the opinion. I have the apologies. I have the judge's Camille. name here. So it was Justice Wilkinson who wrote a concurring decision uh, finding that it was appropriate to maintain the lower court decision with respect to uh, compensatory and appropriate damages. Uh, but, but just then, let me say, Camille, I, I want to let you have that. I just want to say the majority opinion focused on on the human cost, right? Like the, that's what makes our this is why we're giving a hero to Justice Wilkinson. I don't want to say like the majority opinion by Judge uh, Stephanie Thacker pointed out all the things that were wrong in the chosen farming practices, focusing on the piling of hog carcasses and dumpsters, the spraying of hog waste and all the things that were done to harm humans. But Justice Thacker's opinion 
opinion, of course, makes no mention of the animals. They're almost an afterthought in this horrendous horror show that's going on at Smith Fields. Yeah, I mean, really good to, to point out the human cost of farming, which is something that often gets missed and it's on full display in places like this. And, you know, the environmental racism is an undercurrent here as well. Often farms will choose to go to poor communities of color to set up their operations and will just do horrible things that destroy everyone's health and quality of life. But um, you're right. So... Now, Justice Wilkinson speaks much more about uh, the conditions on the farm and describes what confinement is like for the over 14,000 hogs at this particular farm crammed into 12 confinement sheds. So this is a what's called a finishing facility. Hog farming is separated into two stages. There is the um, farrow to wean stage, which is where piglets are born. Mothers are artificially inseminated. The uh, They're put in gestation crates to uh, percolate for a period of time until they give birth. Then after a couple of weeks, those those baby piglets are weaned from their mothers and they're taken to a finishing operation, which is what this facility did. So they arrive at around the size of 40 pounds to be fattened to over seven times their starting weight. And uh, the judge goes on to describe how they're densely packed into pens from the moment they arrive until they're sent to slaughter and discusses some of the filth that's present as well, uh, both inside the farm and outside in these lagoon cesspits where the pig feces ends up. And I just want to read a couple of notes from what the judge said, because again, I, I really think like this is deserving of a hero. And I just want to point out my reasoning for choosing uh, it's Judge Wilkinson, correct, as the hero in this is because this is not an animal related lawsuit. And we have talked on occasion about how difficult it is to get animal interests before the courts. Right. In this case, the human interests were easy. There's no standing issue. They were able to come forward and say our interests are ruined. But for a judge to go the extra mile and really point out that animal interests were at stake here too is really what gets you a hero on pawn order because in that case you're actually that is the way we evolve the law we get these statements like the warp in the human hog relationship and the root of the nuisance lay in the deplorable conditions of confinement conditions that there is no reason to suppose were unique to that facility confinement defined life for the over 14,000 hogs all of which Smithfield owned that Kinlaw Farms had crammed into its 12 confinement sheds. So what you have here is a real recognition at several points in the judgment that the problem here is what was neglected is animal welfare is connected to human welfare. Am a little less, you know, a little less on that one, but it's still a step forward for the judge. At least this judgment recognizes the importance of the animals um, in this equation, and for that, I think is uh, gets a worthy hero on pawn order. I agree. The the animal focus language is, is uh, not common, but very welcome. Um, I also love, Peter, how uh, Justice Wilkinson talks about some of the other links between treating animals so poorly and, and human health that extend beyond just the environmental contamination in the area and relevant to the situation that we're all in right now, a goddamn pandemic. <laughs> Justice Wilkinson talks about how there was a, uh, an outbreak of, of pig epidemic diarrhea virus on the farm, and it was the hogs who suffered first. But she notes that, I think she, she notes that humans are not far behind. 
uh, because pathogens like H1N1 swine flu, which mutate in pigs, can sometimes jump to humans. And the judge describes how in the swine flu outbreak of 2009, there were almost 275,000 hospitalizations and 12,500 deaths in the United States. And again, this is, you know, a direct consequence of confining these animals in these conditions and allowing those diseases to percolate. So, uh, totally well-deserved hero award for this judgment. Very excited to see it. For every hero, Camille, there is a zero, and y- y- you found a good one. Here. Well, I've got to say thank you to Aaron Martellani, who actually found this hero, sorry, this zero, <laughs> decidedly <laughs> zero. a zero. Oh, God, such a zero. <laughs> so Aaron passed on uh, a story from Iowa Involving a lawsuit, so workers, a worker in particular from a Tyson um, meat uh, pig slaughterhouse <sighs> died of COVID-19. And of course, there were huge outbreaks, especially in the early days of COVID. Uh, and this is a case where one slaughterhouse is being sued over somebody who passed away from that disease. And alleged in the lawsuit is that managers at this Tyson slaughterhouse bet money. They had a betting pool, Peter, on how many workers they thought would contract COVID-19. Can you imagine being so callous? But is it a surprise when you treat animals so poorly that you would treat humans so poorly as well? It's what I hear about uh, Tyson. You know, it goes with their company slogan, we're all heart. Well, and that's... (laughs) (laughs) We're all heart. (laughs) We're all guts. Oh my God. But, you know, I love love what... Tyson, I mean, I love, I hate, I hate what Tyson said, but it goes back to conversations that we've had, Peter. Uh, Mm. Tyson's president and CEO, Dean Banks, said, we are extremely upset about the accusations (laughs) involving some of the leadership at our Waterloo plant. We're a family company. The rogue. rogue. It's the rogue rogue employees. This is what the industries always do when they're exposed to wrongdoing. They say, oh, it's the fault of a few, like, bad actors, a few rogue employees, bad apples. It's not us. It's just these people. We're going to fire these people and everything will be fine. Uh, If only it were true. Yeah. The entire industry is rotten. So thank you, Aaron, for passing on that well-deserved zero. Wow. Well, thanks, everybody, uh, for tuning in. This was, I, I don't know, I thought this was one hell of a fun show. <laughs> there was a lot of interesting stuff today, which is usually what makes for a good show. But if you thought that was fun, well, tune in uh, three weeks from now. I can tell you, Camille, that as this show went on, I already jotted down a special Christmas gift for you. (laughs) So I've already thought one up. I had to jot it down, and I can't tell you what it is, of course, because it's not time. But uh, we're very excited about our next upcoming show. And, uh, well, until then, we are looking forward, all three of us, to welcoming you back to our special holiday edition spectacular on order. Until next time. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcaster. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order, if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. 
And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on On Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!